You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. How we come to know something, how we arrive at deciding on what truth is, is probably the most discussed, debated, agreed upon, argued over, used, abused, and generally thought about concept in human history. It is the root of human philosophical and actual engagement with the world. As individuals and as varying collectives, at some point we identify a framework that validates what we know. Whatever the framework available to them, at some stage every person tells themselves, I know this because... In this episode, we are going to look at the journey of Western-based epistemology, how we come to know things. We'll be doing so from a particular way of looking at this journey that was posited in the 1960s by a certain American physicist. From this perspective, hopefully we can have a look at how necessary and fundamental rebellion and resistance are to the processes by which human communities agree on what we know and how we know it. We threw around a few ideas on how to do this, how to tackle this topic, and we finally settled on an approach that is comfortable to us. An approach that, were it, say, a guitar solo, we hope would bend your brain and melt your face. The first part of the episode will be a weird-ass extended metaphor involving a raft of humanity and a soon-to-be dystopic future. It may get really bloody strange, but definitely stick with us, and hopefully it will be worth it. If not, then afterwards you can reflect on how you shouldn't just do everything that anyone tells you to do. Following our metaphoric journey we'll have a little analytical glance at this whole thing and we'll wrap it all up with a reassured sense that, just like everybody else, we really have no idea what is going on. So, without further ado, welcome to Stuff What You Tell Me, a podcast that focuses on the varieties and roles of resistance and rebellion in history, art, and culture. This is going to be a culture one. Kind of. Maybe. We think. You can decide. This episode is brought to you by the Flat Earth Society. Get in contact. They have offices all around the globe.
As the sun rises on a new day, the peoples of the ancient world have gathered together at a dock in a place called the Bay of Ignorance. Everybody is here, from the Greeks to the Egyptians, the Babylonians to the Assyrians, from the Indus Valley tribes to the Chinese. Everyone you've ever heard of and never heard of in the history of civilization. Every king, every peasant, every emperor, every whore and every sage, every philosopher, every heretic who has been and will ever be. We've all just boarded a small rickety raft called Knowledge. And we're about to go on a journey. Up until now, explaining the world has depended largely on superstition and religion. For sure, there are those who have cried out with logic or reasoning, but their voices were too quiet, their proclamations lost. The world is a frightening place where events like plague, famine, fires, floods, earthquakes, all seemingly strike at random. What else could explain such terrible happenings? other than angry gods lashing out at those who have been insufficiently praising them. But those who defy such simple explanations are always around, questioning, observing, hypothesizing. The more they observe things, the more they study the world around them, the more they create connections between different occurrences and phenomena. It seems like, perhaps, if they just think hard enough, they will be able to explain what is happening around them. A man named Thales of Miletus suddenly calls for attention. His voice can be heard by those around him. My friends, I have made a breakthrough. Everything that happens in our world has a natural cause. Whatever we see is the result of nature. We do not need demons or gods to explain our world. There is a general murmuring from the crowd on the raft around him. Some voices cry blasphemy and urge for him to be sacrificed to the gods of the sea. Others call out for him to explain further. Our world is a flat disk of water, he goes on. The land floats on this water, so earthquakes are caused by waves shaking the land, just like waves cause this raft to rock. And with that, Thales gives the raft an almighty shove, and it begins to drift slowly away from the shore. Many on board cry out in horror, but others note that the raft really does rock as it passes over the waves. You see, I am right, proclaims Thales. And now we are leaving the Bay of Ignorance and headed to the edge of the world, to the island of truth. We are adrift. As we head out into the open sea, Thales of Miletus continues his work. He is doing things like using geometry, borrowed from the Egyptians, to calculate the distance of the raft from the shore. He is still certain that everything consists of water in different conditions that determine whether a thing sits high or sits low. Our wooden raft is water that is denser than the water that makes up the sky but not as dense as the water that makes up, well, the water of the sea on which we drift. We're not sure what to think about this, but Thales at least leads the way. His work encourages 
and inspires others. Everybody on Earth is on this raft. We can't and will never see them all, know what they are all doing or saying. But we are near the Greeks, and they are a frenzy of activity to try to explain things. Pretty soon, different ideas emerge. A man called Pythagoras shouts out that everything is made of numbers, and a bunch of people sit around listening to him, arranging squares around triangles. Another guy, called Democritus, says that everything is made up of atoms. Suddenly, three immensely loud men take up everybody's attention. Socrates emerges as a figure around whom others gather. He is not so concerned with how things work, but more with how we come to know what we think we know. He questions the assertions of those around him and drives them to defend their own ideas to themselves. One of these people is Plato. His voice will remain one of the loudest far into the future. Plato does and says a lot of things that have a great impact on those around him. He feels that all these ideas need to be arranged, and that those most naturally inclined to philosophy must be taught and nurtured in their preordained pursuit. He opens an academy on the raft to do just this. Plato really doesn't like the ideas of Democritus with his atoms. He orders his followers to get as many copies of Democritus's work as possible and ritualistically burn them. As he watches the bonfire, Plato stares at the shadows dancing on the deck of the raft and mutters that maybe everything we see is just a shadow. The followers of Democritus protest, but nobody is listening to them anymore and they go and sulk in the corner, their numbers ever diminishing. It is Aristotle, though, pupil of Plato's academy, whose voice will become one of the loudest of all time. For over a thousand years, what he says about nature and motion will form the basis from which most others on this part of the raft do their work. He announces himself by standing up and ripping up the old map that we had been using up until now. Aristotle tells us that we can learn everything through careful observation of the world. It is obvious that our earth is a sphere at the center of everything and that the heavens rotate around us. We see this happen every day. He backs up his idea of the spherical earth by pointing out that the shadow it casts on the moon during a lunar eclipse shows us that this is so. He postulates that everything consists of four elements, fire, water, earth, and air. Within the spheres, these elements compose themselves into what we see around us. Furthermore, Aristotle tells us about motion, that things only move with a force exerted upon them. The wind to our raft, for instance. With these statements, Aristotle attaches a new rudder to our raft and tells everybody not to worry. We might have been wrong earlier, but now there's no doubt that we are heading straight towards the island of truth. After him, his followers remain firmly in charge of our navigational course, steering our raft, knowledge. They build a giant statue to Aristotle, and its shadow will loom over us all. 
A few years after the great teacher's death, a man named Aristarchus of Samos speaks up. He has always just sat there, looking up at the sky, day and night. Whilst he agrees with Aristotle that we are on a sphere or a globe, he thinks that this globe rotates around the sun in the sky. We'd always seen the sun as moving, but he suggests that it is we on our globe that are moving, and the sun is in fact stationary. The stars, he claims, are just other suns, really far away. The followers of Aristotle listen to Aristarchus and then burst out laughing. What evidence do you have for such outrageous claims? One man exclaims as he gasps in the hilarity of it all. Aristarchus's cheeks burn as he admits that he has none, since no man could possibly see so far. Well, come back to us when you can, they chuckle. And Aristarchus cuts a lonely figure as he walks to the back of the raft and returns to his place, looking up at the sky in solitude. Although some may still discuss the different opinions, when Ptolemy turns up, he puts the whole matter to bed by showing us that everything, including the sun, rotates in circles moving in circles around the earth. The maths is perfect, and for over 1,300 years, no one will challenge his model. His work convinces everybody that we are at the center of everything. Through discoveries and tinkering and implementing new understandings, countless people work on knowledge, turning it into a superior vessel. It is Aristotle and Ptolemy's followers who are in control, and as our boat becomes a ship, a kind of trireme, we start to get physically bigger and bigger. We find new lands, none of them truth, but we conquer them and we take all the resources that we can. But then there is chaos, absolute and terrifying. As far as we can see, there is bloodshed and furor, and few new ideas are coming forth. Nobody even knows who is steering the ship. When the chaos subsides, everything seems slower. In our section of the ship, the superstitious ranks of the population have taken over. Over in the distance on another part of the ship, there is light and commotion, and they seem to be having a party. But for us here, there is a new order and control. Now everything is answered by the existence of one God. There are still voices, suggestions, postulation, but they may only work within those parameters. If what people say defies these ideas, then they are thrown overboard or hoisted up to be hanging off a long beam projected out and over the water and burned to death. For a millennium, this is the way of things. Aristotelian and Ptolemaic constructs within the confines of a fear of God. These are the coordinates by which we navigate our way to truth. We are even told that there is no land of truth, but that it exists only after we die, and only if we obey the one God. Following this course set out for us is the only way to truth. For a long time, we believe it. Until we don't. Some of us start to observe more closely and give reason to explanations that do not conform to the established framework. 
Nicholas Copernicus, surrounded by a wealth of intellectual heavyweights who have tutored and schooled him and endowed him with strong critical faculties, shows a model of the universe with the sun at its center and not the earth. He is quiet about it, not wanting to upset anyone. Nobody listened to Aristarchus all those years ago. But this time, Copernicus will not be alone in his questioning. Others will pick up on the Copernican model, and their postulations are seen as being blasphemy against God, so the authority reacts to this with violence. Giordano Bruno, a monk, suggests how big the universe may truly be. He is not the first to do so, but his voice is loud when he suggests that the stars themselves are distant suns, and that there may well be other planets rotating around them. What, he asks, if there is distant life also on them? He marvels at the scope of God's creation. Nobody marvels with him, though, and the community largely condemns him. He decides that the only way to get more people to listen to him is to rock the boat, and he runs from one side of the ship to the other. It's been smooth sailing for the past thousand years, so the sudden commotion catches people off guard. They jeer and kick at him as he pleads with ever greater desperation that they entertain his heretical ideas. He is imprisoned in the hull of the ship, before being taken out by the authorities, hoisted onto a beam out over the water, and executed by fire. Ouch. There goes Giordano Bruno. More like Giordano Berno. The problems continue to mount, though, for Aristotle's followers. One man, Johannes Kepler, discovers that the planets appear to move in ellipses, rather than Ptolemaic circles in circles. Another, Galileo Galilei, stands up amidst the ruckus that is building, holding a telescope, and says that he can prove that we are not at the center of everything. Through his telescope, he can see satellites that revolve around Jupiter. He also notes that Venus goes through phases, much like our own moon, suggesting it revolves around the sun, not us. The followers of Ptolemy must be wrong. The religious authorities, however, they don't buy it. So they lock Galileo Galilei up, and they put him on trial. He is forced to recant submitting to the established doctrine that the universe revolves around us. He does this, but afterwards he mutters defiantly, and yet, it moves. Although there is still much division and God still plays a central role in our lives, the confines to our exploration are gone. Galileo has shown us the proof that Aristarchus could not so long ago. To defy it would be to defy our senses. After his death, a letter by Galileo is published which says, quote, I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed us with senses, reason, and intellect has intended us to forego their use. End quote. Following this, our navigational course and the map we use can now be determined not by a select and superstitious elite, but by intellectual observation experimentation, and the reasoning of those willing to do the work. Where for so long God had provided a simple and effective solution to every unknown, people would now use science to find the answers instead. 
More and more people are encouraged in this pursuit. It is a revolution. And people from many different sections of the ship are clamoring about, theorizing and doing equations, pointing at things in the sky and in the water, mixing substances with other substances and testing out each other's ideas. Arguments and discussion abound. The followers of Aristotle are still bearing influence, but they are being challenged for the first time in over a thousand years, and some of the challenges will have the loudest and the most confident voices that we have ever heard. One day, we see a man clambering up the statue. He perches up on the shoulders of the giant, reading the Bible and trying to figure out how to turn lead into gold. A crowd of his contemporaries gathers around, staring up curiously at this eccentric man. After a couple of hours, he gets hungry, and he calls for some food. A young child tries throwing him an apple, and though he grasps for it, his fingers clench thin air, and the apple falls to the ground. The man stares at it for a while. Then taking a quill and paper, he starts scribbling down equations. He regards the sun and the sky, thinking about and working on things like the motion of the ship, the waves, the earth, how do things move, stay still or fall. The man's name is Isaac Newton. He climbs down from his viewpoint and hands out his work. He has devised a new mathematical language for measuring how things change and through this has explained the laws of the universe, gravity, Motion, inertia. The sun is at the center and the planets revolve around it on paths which he can calculate with precision. The followers of Aristotle regard Newton's work suspiciously and keep calling out for people to stay listening to them. Newton, however, walks up to one of the older men, condescendingly pats him on the head and says, If I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Much like the planets revolve around the sun, the majority of people around us begin to gravitate to Newton. The younger generation makes Newton the new navigator of knowledge. His laws can predict almost everything. His most enthusiastic followers use his equations to figure out exactly how much force is needed to accelerate that massive Aristotle statue straight into the water. They cheer as it comes toppling down and then replace it with an even bigger statue of their new captain. There are still some, mainly the elder men, who doubt the veracity of Newton's laws and hold on to the old ideas. Since time eternal, comets appearing in the sky had been regarded with superstition as omens of the wrath of some or other god. Newton's friend and great supporter Edmund Halley, however, uses past observations and Newton's calculus to predict the appearance of a comet some 50 years into the future. When Halley's comet does return in the sky as he predicted, the disciples of Newton take it as confirmation that now, finally, we are on the right track. By following the course which Newton has set, we will finally get to the island of truth. Astronomers busily continue mapping out and predicting the movement of the planets in the sky, and they all perfectly match the paths laid out by Newton's laws. But one day, using a telescope, 
William Herschel discovers a brand new planet, which comes to be known as Uranus. When the path of Uranus doesn't move exactly as predicted using Newton's laws, there is consternation. Either Newton has gotten something wrong, or there is something that we've missed. It is inconceivable to us that these laws which have proven so useful in every other circumstance could now be wrong. Two men, Urbain Le Verrier and John Couch Adams, working on different parts of the ship, come up with a solution at the same time and predict the existence of yet another planet, further out from Uranus. Le Verrier gives his predictions to a much better observer than Adams does, however, and within an hour of beginning his search, the new planet has been found. Neptune. Le Verrier stands next to the statue of Newton, and all the scientists on the ship cheer loudly and slap each other on the back. Jolly good work, chaps. Jolly good work. They exclaim to each other with resounding rounds of self-congratulations. Not only have we proven Newton to be right, but we have discovered a whole new world. It is a spectacular demonstration of the power of modern science. As the crowd of gentlemen accept their drinks from their many servants, one person shows Le Verrier an astronomical chart that shows that the planet Mercury also doesn't match up with Newton's law. Aha, sans souci, says a tipsy Le Verrier. The solution is uh, très simple. There must be another planet inside the orbit of Mercury. Just like. Your anus. <laughs> Our boat gets bigger, faster, stronger, and we collect more and more resources from islands we come across on our voyage. We chop down as many trees as we can, and now we are on a huge ship of the line. Newton's principles bring together the multitude of ideas and theories that now abound, and knowledge powers ahead at a furious rate. Someone invents a steam engine powered by coal, and so we take all the coal we can find and burn as much of it as we can. Great clouds of smoke billow out of knowledge's chimneys. We arm our ship with cannons that can hurtle huge metal balls terrific distances. We know how far they will travel based on the force emitted because of Newton's equations. Those who drive the pursuit of discovery and technological advancement come from the elite on board the ship. They come from rich families, so can spend their time tinkering and studying, unlike the masses who have to shovel coal into the furnace or swab the decks. As the understanding of natural phenomena increases, so too does its complexity. There is always a need to communicate discoveries to the masses, though, and some endeavour to do this. One of them, Michael Faraday, is an exception to the elitist rule. He comes from the lower classes, and he learns to demonstrate that electricity and magnetism are actually both different expressions of the same fundamental force, electromagnetism. Using his discoveries, he creates the first electric dynamo, the ancestor to modern power generators. Faraday, however, despite his brilliance, is more of an experimenter than a mathematician. His work is put into the language of Newton by James Clerk Maxwell, 
suddenly invisible forces can be harnessed to work for us. Technology has become sufficiently advanced to be like magic. Our ship knowledge is now covered with electric lights. Now we can work even in the middle of the night so more jobs can be done by more people. Soon electricity is so cheap that only the rich burn candles. Radio is invented and we use the electromagnetic waves to talk to each other from opposite sides of our extremely large ship almost instantaneously. Every part of our ship is finally connected to each other and we can share information and learn from each other as never before. Soon, coal is overtaken by oil. Internal four-stroke combustion engines allow us to go even further, faster, on less. Our ship scours the planet as it searches for more and more minerals and oil to construct and feed the bigger and more ferocious engines, armory, and hull structures that keep replacing obsolete technologies. But still, nobody has managed to explain that discrepancy of Mercury's movement, or found Le Verrier's predicted planet that might. On the ship, the smaller groupings have started to coalesce into larger ones, Tensions begin to rise as they fight over who controls the use of the resources. Still, our course is the one set out by Newton, but how our ship develops and how we behave on it both start to set themselves at the core of conflicts to come. A young man appears with a stack of papers, a hammer, and a massive nail. He slowly walks up to the great statue of Newton, holds up the stack of papers, and drives the nail straight through all of it. The scientific community worshipping around Newton look up, aghast at this person that none of them know. A giant crack has been riven up the length of the statue, into which the nail holds the papers firmly in place. The man turns around, drops the hammer like a microphone, goes back to his side of the ship, and sits at his desk. Those around approach the papers, and someone takes them down. As everybody leafs through them, reading and discussing them with each other, there are murmurs and exclamations. Some people peer up at the man by the side, and then down again at the work, disbelief written on their faces. This young man, Albert Einstein, has just laid four articles before us which will change how we see such important things as space, time, gravity, mass, and energy. In one go, he explains how things appear to move at different speeds from different places, how the only constant in the universe is the speed at which light travels, how space and time are not separate but of the same thing, and that energy and mass can convert into each other. He gives us an equation to show this. E equals mc squared. Most people don't understand it at all. The initial reaction is muted, because suddenly out of seemingly nowhere, an all-out brawl erupts on the ship. On one side we have the British, the French, and the Russians, and on the other the Germans, the Austro-Hungarians, and the Turks. Us sailors are unpredictable at the best of times, but this fight is unlike anything we've ever seen before. Both sides put their best scientists to task, 
developing new technologies such as tanks, barbed wire, poison gas. After the fighting, everybody sits around bruised and battered, wondering what the hell just happened. Is knowledge actually heading towards truth, or is it just making it easier and easier for us to kill each other? In this post-war period, a British man named Arthur Eddington decides to set up an experiment to test the prediction made by Einstein's new theories. Most British scientists have no interest in hearing about work done in German. Who wants to read work done in the enemy's language when the greatest British mind of all time, Isaac Newton, has been proven correct time and time again for the past 250 years. Eddington carefully observes the position of stars close to the sun during a total solar eclipse, and discovers that they appear not where Newton says they should be, but where Einstein does. Newton is wrong. Everything we believed for the last 250 years is wrong. Everybody gasps. One newspaper accurately describes the situation. Quote, Lights all askew in the heavens. Men of science more or less agog over results of eclipse observations. Einstein theory triumphs. Stars not where they seemed or were calculated to be. But nobody need worry. End quote. The statue of Newton falls to pieces. One scientist, a man named Oliver Lodge, attempts to catch the debris and put the statue back together. He shrieks loudly that Einstein and those who are now quickly building a new statue of him are unduly complicating the universe and should be regarded as Bolsheviks. He and a few others turn their back on the new Einstein statue and continue to vocalize their discontent, but everybody looks at them as relics of the past and nobody is listening to them anymore. Those bowing to Einstein marvel at his work. They apply his theory of motion to the orbit of Mercury, and finally, it moves as expected. Huzzah! They slap each other on the back about how great it is that now, finally, somebody is actually directing us towards the island of truth. We have so much understanding now, so much information at our fingertips. A lot of destruction was wrought by all that fighting, but we have also moved into a new period of understanding. As always, our technology advances. Our ship can now fly. Not at terrific heights or distances, but still, it's pretty cool. The planet around us is showing the effects of our pursuit for truth. When we see land, the vegetation and wildlife are sparse, and the resources ever more depleted. It turns out the fighting is not over, and violence erupts again. Again, it sucks almost everybody on board into it, and soon scientists are being taken, sometimes forcibly, to and fro, and are put to task creating some or other means designed to destroy some or other enemy. But now, in the shadow of the statue of Einstein, the scope of this potential is really realized. Transforming energy into mass and vice versa now means that the power of the universe can be unleashed upon the world and upon us all. Our capacity to kill and destroy explodes like the ever-increasing payloads 
of the bombs that we create. The nuclear age has arrived. Around us, the world gets bleaker and bleaker. Smoke and fumes and toxic vapours are an ever-present factor, making it harder and harder for us to breathe. The gases we emit into the atmosphere weaken its protective shield, making us more and more exposed to the harmful rays of the sun, which also warm the world. The ice caps in the poles begin to melt, causing the sea level to rise. More moisture in the atmosphere makes the storms all the greater, rocking our ship. Scientists begin providing answers, observed reasons for why the world is changing around us. But there is so much division, and people have begun to question their assertions of what is true, and how we arrive at that point. Those in positions of power on the ship both use and abuse the information we have. They agree and deny, posture and placate. Our map is still that which Einstein put there, but countless notes have been attached to it in many and varied scrawling hands. The language of science has by now become so complex that fewer understand it than don't. Most, when they peer upon it, look away in disgust. Communal consensus for the pursuit of truth is fractured, and by now, largely viewed at with total apathy. All we really care about is our ship and the advancements to it that will make our lives easier, especially as the world around us has begun to decay. One day, it becomes impossible to breathe. We look closer at the map and realize that, actually, if we unfold it, it encompasses not just our world, but the entire universe. Luckily for us, knowledge is now a nuclear-powered spaceship able to travel at incredible speeds and incredible distances. When we realize that we can leave this barren place, we decide to do so. We are still on the journey for truth, for sure. How can we not be? But that journey will no longer take place here. It turns out, truth is not an island, but a planet, and we must go there. As we fly away into space, we look down at the superstorms ravaging the planet, the sea we floated on for thousands of years, now the scene of furious, frenetic, and giant waves that pound the coast relentlessly, eating away at the lands that now have no life, no energy and nothing beautiful left on them. We've destroyed this place, but there'll be others. We continue on spaceship knowledge into the great unknown, searching for truth, and more certain now than ever that we really are on the right path in the darkness, floating Forever. Alone. Okay. Everybody. Take a breath. And now. Let's have a chat about what that was all about. In his 1962 book. The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. American physicist. Thomas Kuhn challenged the established idea of scientific progress, 
Up until then, many in the scientific community believed in the idea of a linear progression in science, that knowledge was something that we were building on throughout history. It saw the journey of knowledge as a process of adding new facts and theories to old ones, building an ever greater, more accurate understanding of the world. This outlook described what you could say science ought to be, a way of slowly but gradually moving towards a predestined point of complete and total understanding. That point is called truth. In a way, it is very easy to see how this understanding came to be the norm. The human pursuit for knowledge has occurred over a lot of time and in the face of many challenges. A scientific method as something firm, something stable upon which one can rely, provides assurance to those whose life's work involves traveling down the path of knowledge. Before Kuhn, an Austrian philosopher of science called Karl Popper provided a perspective that is representative of this linear construct of advancement. Popper argued that what makes science special is that scientists do not simply accept that what they have learned is true, but rather that they actively challenge their ideas and attempt to prove their theories wrong. If a theory is proven wrong, it has been falsified. Through a process of elimination of bad theories, the thought is we can know that we are heading towards a more certain basis for our knowledge. Thus, Aristotle is superseded by Copernicus and Newton is improved upon by Einstein. Newton himself said that if I have seen further, it is because I have stood on the shoulders of giants. Kuhn, however, turned this idea on its head. He said that science actually went through phases of normal science, called paradigms, and revolution, called, you guessed it, paradigm shifts. It was Kuhn who coined, or at least popularized, the term paradigm shift. If you hate that term and its modern day overuse for everything, you can blame him. And also for the fact that we are going to use it a lot from this point on. In periods of normal science, the community agrees on a set of rules within this paradigm, which is a framework of understanding. Members of this community then use this framework to solve puzzles between what the paradigm predicts and what is actually observed. Once enough unsolvable puzzles have been accumulated, the paradigm undergoes a crisis and science enters a revolutionary phase in which competing groups contest with each other to build a new paradigm. At this point, there may be a whole emergence of ideas, different ideas, complementing and contradicting each other as various thought rebels take up the challenge to bring down the old crumbling paradigm. This is a crucial moment. Without dissenting ideas, the old paradigm may continue to stand, although cracked and in disrepair, but ultimately unchallenged, just as the Ptolemaic model for the universe did for over 1300 years. Some of these rebels, with dissenting ideas, become the heroes of the next generation, and even eventually the next staid old establishment figures who hold up the foundations of the next dominant paradigm. Others are just batshit crazy and believe in things like, I don't know, 
a flat earth in 2017, and they become consigned to the annals of moronic thoughts and explanations. In one way or another, though, the community will eventually decide on a new set of rules, and a new paradigm will emerge. Once this process has been completed, normal science begins again. Kuhn argues that paradigms are incommensurable with each other. That is, one cannot criticize the old paradigm in terms of the new, since they talk about the world in fundamentally different ways. In our current paradigm, Aristotle's structure makes no sense. We see things through our specific framework, and there is no possibility of ever objectively comparing the two. Kuhn said, quote, Though each may hope to convert the other to his way of seeing science and its problems, neither may hope to prove his case. The competition between paradigms is not the sort of battle that can be resolved by proofs. End quote. So Kuhn's ideas arrived on the scene in a fairly revolutionary way, challenging the conventional ideas as exemplified by those like Karl Popper. The major difference between Kuhn and Popper is that Kuhn worries less about the logic of science and more about the description of how it actually works. Kuhn persuasively shows that when a theory has been falsified, its proponents do not automatically reject it, as Popper's idealized version of his theories assume they would. Instead, they call them anomalies and attempt ad hoc additions to save the theory that they have perhaps dedicated their entire career to, constructing and defending it. A great example of this was when astronomers believed that there must be another planet inside the orbit of Mercury, which would explain its otherwise inexplicable orbit, rather than rejecting Newton's model, which had proven so successful in so many other circumstances. Perhaps the most controversial of Kuhn's claims, however, is that since competing paradigms are incommensurable, whatever is eventually chosen is not done logically or objectively, but on irrational grounds. The strongest proponents of Kuhn would have you believe that it's not much more than mob mentality that decides what the next dominant paradigm will end up being. The paradigm is chosen on the basis of community consensus, which can be a fickle and folly-filled thing. Time and generational change seems to also be as important as explanatory power. As Max Planck said, quote, An important scientific innovation rarely makes its way by gradually winning over and converting its opponents. What does happen is that the opponents gradually die out, end quote. The point is that Kuhn acknowledges that scientists are human, and humans do not very often, if ever, act in rational or logical ways. Perhaps you are sitting there thinking, no shit, Sherlock. And if you are, it is because of Thomas Kuhn's 1962 book. The extended metaphor that we... The very extended metaphor... The, the very, very, very extended metaphor we began the show with, in which all of humanity starts out on a raft and ends up flying off into space, is an attempt to portray Kuhn's argument in story form. The core idea of it was that 
everybody on board assumed they were heading in the right direction. In reality, we were always just floating on an endless sea, changing direction according to each subsequent paradigm shift. During each paradigm, there was a certain map that the people on board followed. When the map did not explain things properly, a revolutionary period would eventually happen. Thought rebels would tear down the old statues and build up new ones, gaining followers from the crowd. Others still hung on to the old ideas. But eventually, they died, or people just stopped listening to them. But we use the power of technological advancement and the potential inherent in each new paradigm to make improvements to our ship, and so saw ourselves morph the raft into this awesome spaceship. Our advancements and single-minded goal to search for truth led us to the exploitation and exhaustion of the resources we drew from the world, leaving it a barren shell, which we had to leave in order to continue our search. Where there was progress in some ways, there was total devastation in others. This is a dystopic view, for sure, but is it that far from reality? Kuhn's work presents issues, not only for the scientific community, but for everybody. These issues have been debated and discussed since he presented his ideas. Structure of scientific revolutions took Western science down off the pedestal upon which it had been mounted since the 1600s. No longer was it this concrete gift of the Enlightenment, a sturdy instruction manual, which, by following it, would eventually bring us to truth. No, science was now just another human endeavour, prone to the frailties and weaknesses of the human character, and therefore itself also flawed. Forcing the members of a community to take a good, hard look at themselves is not such a bad thing. But critics of Kuhn take particular umbrage at the consequent assault on the perceived value of truth within the scientific and broader communities. You can take Kuhn's arguments on a logical progression towards seeing science as a formerly liberating force that has now become mired in its own dogmatic establishment structures, as Paul Feyerabend did. You can also complete that logical sequence and arrive at a destination where truth simply doesn't exist. If every paradigm must be viewed with skepticism and comes about as a result of irrational agreement, then no paradigm can take precedent over another. All ideas are equally untrue. Some might say that could be a pretty dangerous place to go. In the end, at this podcast, we veer towards disagreeing with the way of things as presented in our metaphor, according to the extremities of Kuhn's ideas. Maybe it's best to look at knowledge and our journey of knowledge in a Darwinian way. As we go through periods of revolution, our knowledge becomes better adapted to the situation in which we find ourselves. Our understanding, rather than some raft floating around on a sea, and to torture even more metaphors, could actually be more like more like a small dinosaur, covered with feathers, whose descendants are one day able to flap their stubby little dinosaur arms and fly away from predators. There's no objective reason to say that 
the flying dinosaur is better than its ancestor who couldn't fly. It just happens that in the circumstance it finds itself, it is more suited to survive and thrive. There was no goal in its evolution. It didn't aim to fly. But it ended up being more suited to the environment it found itself in. Sure, perhaps the advancement of our knowledge does not happen in a linear way, with triumph building upon triumph, but nor are we simply floating around aimlessly. Our frameworks have evolved, perhaps with no particular destination in mind, but nevertheless, we have ended up with an increased complexity of understanding. And this brings us back to the fundamental question that we started this episode with, perhaps the fundamental question of all time. How do we decide on what truth is? The fact of the matter is that we must give ourselves something to base our understanding on. Over many millennia, we have built up so many different structures. And whether you view them as linear or revolutionary, of these structures, science has thus far proven itself the most capable of reconciling our questions with sufficient answers. It isn't perfect, but nothing is. Though we might not be able to prove a theory is absolutely true, that doesn't conversely mean that it's not true, or at least not useful. It's better to have a framework, some framework, than none, and science seems to be a much more powerful tool to understanding than, say, the religious superstitions of the past. To see lightning and understand it as a natural occurrence explained by physical laws is far more satisfying to the seemingly endless capacity of human curiosity than to simply say, the gods must have done it? It would be interesting to ask Kuhn if he would be better off living in a world with that old understanding or whether he'd rather live in the modern one in which he did. And at the end of the day, Perhaps science is similar to democracy. It might not be perfect, but it's better than all the other methods we have tried. Sure, we may never find the ultimate truth, but at least our journey has taken us far, far away from that shitty bay of ignorance where we began. Thank you for listening to Stuff What You Tell Me. These are the credits. Blah, 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 blah. Patreon. Blah, 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 blah. iTunes. Five stars. Reviews. Woo. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, Facebook. Share our stuff. Tell people about us. Do whatever you want. We don't fucking care. Just keep listening.